Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we lift up your name on high, Lord, with your promise that with that you'll draw all people unto yourself. And Lord, as we open your Bible to study your word, may you bless it, Lord, and have your way with it. And God, we ask that you send Deb away with the richest and deepest of blessings, Lord, that it would be your path that she's following and that you would richly bless her there, um, Lord, with friendships and, and incredible work opportunity and, and just uh, finding her perfect place there in all things, Lord. Mostly, Lord, that you be uh, just noticeably a shining light for you uh, to all who come to know her as we have, Lord. So bless her as uh, she travels and bless her as she uh, moves and Lord, give her every ambition to keep in touch with us. Um, we pray in Jesus' name. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. <laughs> okay. A lot on King Ahab tonight. King Ahab tonight and next week for sure. <clears throat> Elijah is going to take a bit of a backseat this week. And we're going to see a couple other prophets, unnamed prophets, step in. Yet we're going to see the same dynamic of even though the kings are the rulers, their ears have got to be wide open to the prophets. Because anybody who knows God <clears throat> becomes uh, essentially an authority. Because when they know the mind of God and they share the mind of God and the heart of God, that becomes uh, the game plan. Um, so we pick it up in chapter 20 that uh, Elijah just met Elisha and called him to follow at the end of chapter 19 and then we meet um, it says now Ben-Hadad the king of Syria gathered all his forces together 32 kings were with him with horses and chariots now it's probably not 32 kings ruling nations independently. These are probably vassal states, states that pay Syria for protection, things like that, like Israel and Judah often do throughout their history. But there's 32 of them with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver, and, your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. Imagine that announcement to you. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. I'm sure that swept his wife right off of her feet. <laughs> then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. So this is really bullying, isn't it? Okay. So first he says, pretty much all you have is, is mine. And then he says... Now, this time tomorrow, whatever it is that you like, uh, we're going to take. It's not even whatever we like. He's saying, I am here to insult you. I am here to uh, show you my supreme authority, my power over you. So whatever you like, which I would say it's all the cauliflower in the kingdom. It's all the peas. You know? um, 
but that is what I'm going to take. So he's making it very personal, isn't it? Very personally insulting to Ahab. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. How would you like that for your leader? And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. In other words, I'm going to completely destroy you now. Now that you have not acquiesced to my second request, I'm going to so destroy Samaria that there won't be enough dust for anybody to take a handful of dust. Now, um, when you see this chapter at a distance and you see from beginning to end what's going to happen, I want you just to notice that Ben-Hadad pronounces his own outcome here. Okay, he's pronouncing his own outcome. He's saying, let, let uh, the gods do so to me and more also if I don't completely destroy you. Right? Okay? So as he kind of challenged uh, Ahab, he's now challenging his gods, which isn't a big deal at all because why? They don't exist. Okay. But he doesn't know that. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Now what does that mean? I had to think about it for a while. What's that? No, he's saying, listen, let not the one who puts on his armor, who somebody puts on his armor, somebody going to battle, right? Let him not boast like one who takes it off. Who takes off their armor? The winner. I'm done. I'm alive. I'm taking off my armor. You're boasting as if you already won. Okay, you're counting your chickens before they hatch. That's a new one. You should write that down. That'll probably catch on. Um, it, you know, when I, when I thought about it and I figured it out, it reminded me, for you football fans out there, I think it was Herman Edwards when he was coaching, I think, the Chiefs. And... For whatever reason, he was being interviewed, and he said, that's why you play the game. Um, you just don't take somebody who's heavily favored and say, well, they're going to win, so what the heck, or whatever. you got to play the game and see what happens. That's what he's kind of saying to this king. You just don't claim victory like somebody taking off their armor. You, you've got to <laughs> act like somebody's putting on their armor. You haven't fought yet. we got to see what the outcome will be. And it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. So what's the advantage you automatically see, see for Ahab here? He's fighting a man who's drinking, correct? Now listen, first of all, you gotta be extremely arrogant to be drinking and, and, and leading a battle or a war, correct? You gotta be saying, I could do this as a drunk and beat you, right? Okay, we're so overwhelmingly better or more powerful that I don't even need to be sober for this. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 9, um, Peter says, be sober-minded. Does anybody know why Peter says to be sober-minded? He says, because the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. 
In other words, according to that, according to the Apostle Peter, the devil looks at the inebriated and says, I got you. You're easy. I can manipulate you. How many decisions are made drunk that would never be made sober? Okay, you're actually going to see a decision this king makes and you go, who would have ever have done what he just did? Well, it tells you he was drinking. He needed alcohol to do that. Uh, so you'll see that in a minute. So uh, they were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. Verse 13. Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel. Now, throughout Kings, you've been seeing kings get introduced by this king began to reign at this age. He's the son of this guy, the son of this guy, the son of this. They get these big introductions, right? Here's a prophet to say a prophet suddenly appeared. Okay? And listen to what Jesus says. Here, because prophets play the role of God's spirit in the Bible. They play the role of God's spirit. Here's what Jesus says about that. He'll say in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus about being born again. He'll say, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the spirit. Now, he's doing a play on words in Greek that we don't get in English, because the word for wind is pneuma. And the word for spirit is pneuma. Wind, spirit, and breath are all the same word in Greek. It's all pneuma. So he's saying the pneuma blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone born of the pneuma. He's comparing wind to pneuma, just like wind is free. It just goes where it wants. Nobody tells it where to start. Nobody tells it where to stop. It just goes. So it is with the spirit. And that's what you see of these prophets. Um, kings are just busy about doing their business. A prophet appears, gives them a word, and they have a chance for success through what? Obedience. obedience. Thank you for saying that word. That's the word I'm trying to press through this whole book. If obedience was a thing followed, this would be the most boring book of the world. Just be like, hey, it's Camelot in Israel. It's always good all the time. Okay? But it's a lack of obedience that makes so many of these kings describe as following the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, over and over and over and over and over again. Disobedience after disobedience. So it says that suddenly a prophet approached Abad, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I'm the Lord. Now, King Ahab, does he get a, hey, he's a great king in Israel, or does he get, he's an evil king in Israel? He gets the evil king. So what is God doing here promising him an evil king's success? Well, God gave you the true motivation for why Ahab's going to have success. What is it? It's the key to the whole chapter. So you will know that I am the Lord. Okay? <clears throat> I am going to do this so that you'll know that I'm the Lord. Now, <clears throat> what can we expect from that? If Ahab ends up going, I know the true God the God of the Jews, and I worship him. Don't you think things will go well? Okay, Easy? Not necessarily. Well, when all is said and done, when we're reading about him thousands of years later, yeah, it'll, it'll go well. So he says, I'm going to deliver him into your hands so that you'll know that I'm the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? That's a risky question. Why? He just said, I will deliver them to you. He says, but he says, by whom? But now here's what God does. And Paul tells us this is how God operates. 
He says he chooses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise, correct? Okay, and you're saying that as part of the chosen. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> but it's a gift from it. Okay. <laughs> All right, so, um, and he, he said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. So he's going to use the youth. Okay, he's going to use the young ones. And he says, well, who will set the battle in order? And he said, you. And if Ahab was catching on to God using the foolish, he'd be going, hey, what the heck, right? Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, take them alive. So these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the, ar with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel, there he is again, and said to him, Go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do, for in the spring of the year the king of Syria will come up against you. So he said, okay, you did great, now regroup yourself, because in the spring the king of Syria is coming back. Uh, to you. Now, what went wrong? Well, let's take a look. It says then this twenty-three. Then the servants of the king of Sirius of king of Syria said to him, "Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger they, than they. So do this thing: dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places." And you shall muster an army like the army you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them on the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. So they said, here's the problem. You sent us into the hills with what to fight? Chariots and horses. Can you picture it? Chariots and horses, up and down hills, chariots and horses. It's not going to go well, is it? Okay, so he's saying, yeah, you got to get us on flat land. With the chariots and horses and we'll be fine so what happens to this king in his drunkenness he sends his chariots and horses up into the hills okay where they're at a big disadvantage why he says listen their god is a god of the hills not of the plains so do they think israel has one god no they believed in regional gods back then different areas had different gods and you'd say well how could they think that but here's here's what i want to ask you are you the same person in your private bedroom doing devotions as you are at work? Is your God of your devotional life the God of your occupation? Does he give your same reverence? Um, do you talk about him in the same reverent ways? Um, or is your God regional? He's great when you're home or great when you're at church, but as soon as you walk out to the real world, um, all of a sudden you're quieter or look more ashamed or something like that. So 
as ridiculous as it seems to us to have regional gods where you, when you cross a boundary, there's a different God. How many of us do the same exact thing to God? Okay. Verse 26. So it was in the spring of the year. Look at the uh, end of verse 22. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come against you, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you know a prophet's a two prophet? What he says comes true. What does it say? So it was in the spring of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, while the Syrians filled the countryside. So it's giving you a visual there, okay? And the flocks of goat, who's one of the most famous shepherds in Israel's history? David. So it's giving you that David picture. And when it says the Syrians filled the countryside, what kind of enemy is it pointing to here? If, if the flock of goats is David, then the Syrians would be Goliath, right? So it's a David versus kind of Goliath uh, battle. The man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I'm the Lord. You see what God's trying to get at here? It's the second time he said that, right? And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was on the seventh day that the battle was joined, and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. Now, quiz. You just saw a very similar pattern fulfilled in this battle that was fulfilled in a very famous battle many books ago in the Bible. What did you? What similarities did you see? Jericho. What's that? Jericho. You saw Jericho, right? What were the similarities with Jericho? Wall came tumbling down on him, and what else? Seven days. Seventh day battle, and the wall falling down, right? So there's two points of similarity with Jericho. That's a pattern. Patterns tell us that God is the author of what's happening. God uses patterns so that we recognize him. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about God using patterns. That we should see the fingerprints of an artist whenever we see patterns. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. See, the Bible doesn't believe in atheists. The Bible never considers somebody an atheist, just somebody who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. The Bible says that everybody has God's law on their minds and hearts written there by God himself. So God takes the accountability to say, everybody knows me. And you say, what about people born here, born there? We're actually, I want, I'm going to get to Acts chapter 17. I want to make sure you listen for what Paul says about people born in odd areas and, and how God deals with them. But in, in Romans 1, Paul's saying, everybody knows God, but those that say there is no God are simply suppressing the truth that was written on their heart, that was written on their mind. 
They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. That's the Jeremiah, um, I'll write my law on your hearts and your minds. It's, it, it's manifest in them for God has shown it to them. So God takes personal responsibility saying, I showed it to them. For since the creation of the world, so now it becomes a creation topic, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they were, are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, that's been a big word in the studies, thankfulness, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And that exactly how this trouble started with Jeroboam. He set up two golden calves and said, these are your gods in northern Israel, right? Exactly what Paul says. Um, did Jeroboam have the truth of the true God? Absolutely. Did he suppress it in his unrighteousness? Absolutely. Did he create images of false gods to worship instead? Absolutely. Okay? So, but what I want to get at is this. Patterns are an indication of God being at work. And when you study creation, you'd be amazed at the orderliness and patterns of all of creation. Um, I work with uh, a guy in our art department. He's an actual artist, uh, Mr. Merrill, Mark Merrill. And he um, does an unbelievable teaching on um, Fibonacci numbers and... Um, uh, even the uh, dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant are are exactly the dimensions of almost all of nature. In other words, um, it's, I think it's like a three-two-one pattern that's going on with the Ark of the Covenant. Three um, spans and and all these different things to two to one, and uh, and it matches like the proportions from from the bottom of your foot to your belly button, the belly button to the top of your head. It's the same proportion, um, elbow to, to finger and hand to finger, and it, all these proportions are exactly these Fibonacci numbers, these same patterns. Flowers are made with these patterns. Um, if, you, if you learn, yeah, uh, nautilus spirals are made with these patterns. Um, all, all these things, and, and it, it's what makes for beauty. When artists make multi-million dollar paintings, they're following these patterns, and they're very beautiful to the eye. We see it as beauty. You would think beauty is subjective. You would just say, well, when people say, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. You like that? You like that? But we all naturally gravitate towards considering things beautiful that match the patterns of nature and creation. We're made to see that as beautiful. And, and Paul is trying to say here is God as creator has made himself known. His, his, his Godhead and his uh, power are made known through creation, um, you will see these patterns. Um, Genesis 1 creation is filled with these binaries. It's, it's sun and moon, it's night and dark, it's, it's, night, it's day and night, it's, it's uh, dual pattern after dual pattern, and guess what the climax of that, that dual pattern is? It made them male and female. That should answer a lot of questions nowadays, right? It's literally the climax of all of 
uh, you have the waters above and the waters below, and you have the the, the day and the night, and, and just constant dualities being presented forward. And the ultimate, of course, is that he made them in his image, male and female. He created them. Um, so patterns again. Uh, when you see a pattern, like Ahab should be able to see a pattern here. Hey, I've seen this seventh-day battle before. I've seen walls fall on people before. This is a Jericho story. And what should I know about Jericho? Well, who's the hero of Jericho? It's Joshua. Was Joshua an obedient figure with tremendous success and glory given to his name for all history? Yes. Then what should Ahab be getting out of this episode? I need to be another Joshua. Correct? I need to follow God, be obedient to God. Let's see how it goes. Um, yes, 31. Here we go. Then his servant said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. So now that Ben-Hadad has fled, they're in retreat, they're in defeat. They said, hey, look, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth, sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waist and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, is he still alive? He is my brother. Where did Ahab get that from? He's my brother. Now, Ben-Hadad, remember, the correspondence he's had with Ahab so far is, hey, I'm coming and I want all your gold, silver, your best-looking wives and your kids. And he goes, okay. Then he goes, oh, and also this time tomorrow, whatever else you like, my servants are just going to take that too. Okay, that's the only real correspondence that's gone on here. And now, Ahab's defeating him, and he hears that he escaped alive. He goes, oh, is he alive? He's my brother. Now listen, there is an opportunity to say here, yes, he's a merciful king. Yes, mercy is something we're called to, correct? The question is, if somebody's evil, as we agreed Ahab is, if somebody's evil, what qualifies them for mercy? Repentance. The question is, do we see repentance in an evil king? And a second question for tonight is, if we don't see repentance, then what is appropriate for the enemies of God's people? What is appropriate for the enemies of God's people? So here, with those two questions in mind, he says, I see alive, he's my brother. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him, and they quickly grasped at this word and said, your brother Ben-Hadad. So they're like, yeah, he's your brother. So he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he had him come up into the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Now, 
Was there repentance or not? Is the question. Well, then the dad says to him, listen, my dad took a lot of stuff from your dad. I'll give it back. And you can do like flea markets in my territory. You can set up these shops and stuff and make some profits on my land. Um, what would repentance look like? There's a difference between I'm sorry I did it and I'm sorry I got caught, correct? Or I'm sorry I lost, right? Now that I lost, I don't want the consequence for my loss. That's not repentance, is it? Repentance is this. I'm disgusted for who I was and I want to be somebody different. That's repentance. Okay. But Ahab sends him away with a treaty. Let's see how that works out. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by word of the Lord, strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. You don't mess with the prophets. You do not mess with the prophets. Yeah. Well, it happened in chapter 13, 24. Remember the lion that killed the good prophet? Because he disobeyed one little thing, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> and he found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Probably saw the lion attack, right? <laughs> then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Anything there sound familiar? This is exactly what Nathan did to David. He told him a parable so that he would acknowledge his own guilt. And then he said, you're the guy in the parable and you just said what the guilt should be, right? Because what just happened here? This prophet says to a stranger, he says, strike me. The guy says, nope. But you gotta realize the prophet is speaking the words of God, right? So it's disobedience to God, the lion gets him. Then he goes to another guy, strike me please. And he strikes him and he wounds him and he bandages the wounds over his eyes and he's bandaging it over his eyes because he doesn't want to be recognized by the king and so when the king comes by he says hey i went out into the midst of the battle and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said guard this man if by any means he's missing it's your life for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver while your servant was busy in there here and there he was gone and the king's gone okay you just said you were given a job, and if you failed in the job, you are to be killed. You just acknowledged it, so you're to be killed. Um, and in 41, it says, And he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, Thus says the Lord. Kings hate it when they start sentences like that. <laughs> okay? Thus says the Lord, Because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, Therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, Solomon displeased, and came to Samaria. Now, 
You get the parable? Okay. Um, in other words, what we don't get earlier in the story is that God has planned for Ben-Hadad to be destroyed, completely destroyed, and he puts that into the hands of Ahab, an evil king. And he tells Ahab something twice. What was the thing he told him twice? I'm doing this because so that you will know that I'm the Lord, right? So, just like in, earlier in the Old Testament, Canaanites um, will be appointed over to destruction. Um, sometimes um, the enemy's goods are to be given over for destruction and not kept, like Achan kept them, or they're to be used for the temple. But there's certain times that God has says, no, I've turned certain things over to destruction. Uh, Paul calls those uh, vessels that uh, are, are made for ignoble purposes, right? And, and Ahab is not following through. Saul was under similar commands, wasn't he? He was to completely destroy the Canaanites and their animals, and the prophet of God shows up and says, what? What is this bleeding of sheep that I hear, right? And he spared the king. Um, Saul spared a king that he was supposed to destroy. So, again, the questions I want to bring up is this. How can an enemy of God become a child of God? And you said it was repentance, right? Every time. So the question is, do we see sincere repentance? And it can be hard to tell. It can be really, really hard to tell. I don't think this one's as hard to tell, but you know who a hard one to tell is? Judas. Judas throws the money back on the temple floor and says, I have sinned. He's saying it to priests. He's saying it to, to the Pharisees. He says, I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. Yet, more than once, Jesus calls him doomed, turned over to destruction. Okay. Um, so what was lacking there? Probably the fact that Judas never went to Jesus with that repentance, right? Never went to Jesus. Um, true repentance, I think, really brings you back to the one that you offended. True repentance will bring you face to face with the one you offended. Why? Because that's where your heart is that I want to win that one back over again. Um, so, what I, how I want to kind of build this argument is this. Ahab is presented to us as one who has gone too far. He was shown who God is twice and chose his own ways with Ben-Hadad as he has always done. The next chapter... He'll continue to disobey the Lord and obey his wife instead. Frederick Nietzsche, you're like, man, I got Herman Edwards before, now Frederick Nietzsche from this guy. Nietzsche criticized Christianity because he felt that the teaching resist not evil, which is the turn the other, te turn the other cheek teaching, he said, which is the most profound word of the Gospels, they're, they're the key to the Gospels in a certain sense, turn the other cheek, he says, blessedness and peace and gentleness and is not being able to be an enemy. 
He's saying what the Christian is sacrificing with their Christianity is they're not able to be an enemy when they're called to be an enemy. Now, was Nietzsche right with that? Well, let's look at Philippians chapter 3 real quick. Philippians 3, starting at 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have as you have us for a pattern. There's that word again. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Okay? So, Paul acknowledges that there's enemies of Christ who are destined uh, to destruction. Uh, Psalm 139. After celebrating all these attributes of God, in verse 19, David says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Don't I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Okay. Um, just to kind of give you a picture here. You mothers or fathers or husbands or wives. If, you, if your child or spouse or somebody like that or your parent was brutally beaten and you and, and that person was saying what I did was right and they're gloating over it, could you justify not hating them? How would your how would the wounded person feel if you didn't hate them? Wouldn't they feel like that's a statement on your love for me, a negative statement on your love for me, that you can't become the enemy of, uh, that my enemy is not your enemy, right? Okay? In other words, the Bible has a place for, for what Genesis 3, and this is where it all starts, calls enmity, which is extreme hatred. And guess who started that enmity? God says, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. So he's implanted this hatred, this mutual hatred, between the seed of the serpent, which we would say are the, the children of disobedience, and the seed of the woman, the children of Christ. He has put enmity there. So if we never find an opportunity for enmity, we might just be missing something sometimes. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to blur lines between mercy and grace and all those things. What I'm saying is this. The problems in Israel continue because when God sets things apart for utter destruction, nobody follows through. And what comes from that lack of utter destruction is what separates God's people from God in the long run. They become the thorn in the side. And they become the obstacle and so forth. Um, let me develop this a little bit more since I think some of you are probably going, is this Christian teaching right now? <laughs> okay. 
which I would say I believe it is. Um, enmity arises before the fall of man. And Adam's sin includes his inability to recognize his enemy, or maybe even his refusal to become an enemy to the serpent. He had the authority over that animal to expel that serpent from the garden, given to him by God, didn't he? But like Ahab, he made a treaty. Okay. So, the writer of Hebrews seems to operate from that enmity. In chapter 6, verse 4, he says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. There is a time that becomes too late for the hardened heart to repent. Why? Because they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. In other words, there is a situation where you may be trying to get mercy, and every time you get mercy, they come back with the same hard heart, and they're putting Christ to open shame. Okay? So you say, well, how do I know when? I don't know. I don't know when. Um, but let's see. What, let me do one more from Hebrews 10 and then Acts 17, and maybe that'll clarify a little bit for us. Hebrews 10, starting in verse, uh, I just wrote Hebrews 10, so let's see here. It's 26, Hebrews 10, 26. For if we went sin willfully, after we received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? See, that's where you got to watch is those who insult the spirit of grace. Twice Ahab heard what? So you will know that I'm the Lord. And then when it came for him to follow the Lord, he did what? He followed himself, didn't he? Okay. Um, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, that doesn't go on many marquees in front of church this Sunday. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, let me tell you something. I bet you people would show up for it, but I bet you people that were sitting in there just wanting to check off the box that I went to church and God must be happy, they're the ones who are going to walk out and never come back, right? But is it in the Word of God? Um, is Ahab's condemnation in the Word of God for not destroying Ben Hadad. Yes. Okay. There's a built in enmity that needs to be responded to. So I think Acts 17, the last two places I'm going to go, Acts 17, and then 1 Corinthians 15. So what becomes that thing that we look at that can help us to determine who has enmity or who is just lost? or uh, where we're at personally, and 
that thing, of course, is going to be the cross of Christ. Hebrews 10 talked about trampling the Son of God underfoot, treating his blood as something common, no big deal uh, type of thing. And who treats it as no big deal? Those that know the cross and yet go on willfully sinning, it says. It says, um, I believe I can live this way however I want, and then one day I'll, I'll say I'm sorry. That's the very thing that Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 says it could be too late. I should probably share this from Hebrews 6. Um, Hebrews 6, where I stopped, if I kept going, tells you how you can tell those who are in that, in that uh, situation. Uh, Hebrews 6 said, if you were once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age of God. In other words, they're doing church, they're doing Christian life, correct? And they've fallen away. They put Christ to open shame. Verse 7 says this, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. So he's saying, if somebody says they're a Christian and they're carrying on willfully sinning, Here's the deal. The same word of God that comes to the authentic believer and the inauthentic believer, and the authentic believer, it produces herbs useful to those who are cultivating it. In other words, you will have good works. You'll have a life that shows you've been transformed. That same word falls on the inauthentic and produces thorns and briars, okay? Sticking points. Um, I'm a Christian, but, and then there's whatever follows that. Um, and so it's saying, yes, you're in the same church. Yes, you're hearing the same word. All those things are happening. But um, some people that were enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, which I believe is referring to communion, um, uh, they're, if, they're, if, they're, if the fruit of their life looks like thorns and briars, then... They need to be treated as an unbeliever in the sense of not just receiving them in and say, hey, you're my Christian brother, like Ahab is doing to Ben-Hadad, calling him brother, but instead you're treating them like an unbeliever. Now, how are we to treat unbelievers? With the gospel, right? You, you don't just, you, hey, what are you doing? You know, Christ died and rose again, and, and there, there's a change that happens through the Holy Spirit. How come you're doing these things as somebody who says they have the Holy Spirit? How, how, can you, how can you match uh, sanctification through the Holy Spirit with these sets of decisions that you make in your life? How can you make rhyme or reason out of them being together? And then here's what, and here's where the prophet part comes in. Here's what the word of the Lord says. And you show them. There's no fruit coming from the rain that's falling, which is the word of God, but it's thorns and briars, then it says fearful expectation of judgment. Okay? So when you say, how do you know? You look at the fruit. Jesus says, you'll know her mind by the fruit that they bear. Okay? So when people say, don't judge, you say, I'm not. I'm just being a fruit inspector. <laughs> right? Okay, Acts chapter 17. Such an important chapter for understanding. Starting in verse 22. Is when Paul is in Athens, Greece. He's at the Areopagus. 
Uh, ruins from the Areopagus are still there. You can still walk up the steps of the hill of the Areopagus where Paul taught, where the people sat. You can sit right there. That's pretty cool. He won't be there, but you can be there. He's there, and he's frustrated because on every street corner all over the city are false gods. So he's been inundated with these statues of false gods. And it says that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. They even had a statue. In case they missed a God, they put one to the unknown God. Okay? Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. And watch how genius what Paul does. He goes, hey, you don't know him? Well, I happen to know him, so let me tell you about him. And he says, first sentence, God who made the world and everything in it. In other words, I just shot down every other one of your gods in one sentence. The one that you don't know is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. There's your anti-racism verse, by the way. One blood, the whole nation, of, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And here's the one, here's the verse that talks about, what about born here, born there, haven't heard? He says this, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. They live there because he appointed them to live there. You live here because he appointed you to live here. And he has written his law and everything on our hearts. And he says, well, why did he put them way out there where it's hard to hear? It says, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So your Bible says, why are they way out there and they live in the bush in Africa? God's not far from them. Just like he's not far from you. He appointed their time to be born and the place for them to be born with the intention of their life being seeking and groping after him. And he says, and if they do that, they will find me. Okay? Nobody is put in a doomed situation because where they were born or when they were born or anything like that. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. All their statues, think about it. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Now here comes a sentence that every human being on the planet is subjected to. He says, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. He's overlooked foolishness. People say the Old Testament's filled with such evil. How could God be a loving God with all that evil going on? The question, if you really understand the Old Testament, is how in the world has God been so patient with the evil in the Old Testament? It's his constant waiting. You, you saw it in today's chapter. Ben-Hadad twice, or I'm sorry, Ahab twice. I want you to know that I'm the Lord, which should bring automatic obedience all the time. You who say you know the Lord should bring automatic obedience all the time, submitting yourself to him in all things. 
But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Diane and I were just in Chicago. Crazy ungodliness there. Crazy ungodliness there. Okay, lostness there. Okay, our last Uber driver, just wrong decision after wrong decision, and why is my life where it is? Well, every wrong decision you just brought up to a strange people that just jumped in your car. Probably why. Listen, all of that's got to be filtered through there is an appointed day on which God will judge the world in righteousness. Okay, no matter what the political breezes that are blowing are, no matter what's politically correct or not, if you don't keep the end in mind, you've heard that a few times in this study, you're going to get yourself lost. You've got to keep the end in mind. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Okay? By the man whom he has ordained, and he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Okay, Now this probably doesn't have the impact on the other side of the planet 2,000 years later, but 2,000 years ago in the, in the Middle East when Paul says he proved it by raising him from the dead, the rumors are still very fresh in Paul's day, right? Nobody knows where the Nazarene corpse is. Nobody knows why that tomb is empty, and nobody says it wasn't empty. Never was there a claim that the body was there. It's clearly gone. The question is how? Paul's saying God proved that there's a day of judgment for every person on the planet coming, and he proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. And then, just like then, so now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. While others said, well, here you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. In other words, there's a time where it's too late. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with him. And we will meet them one day, won't we? And I'll finish with 1 Corinthians, um, with Paul saying, you want proof that there's a day of judgment? Go look in Jesus' tomb. If you don't find him there, find him anywhere on the planet. Find his corpse, and then we'll shut up. But if you don't find his corpse, then understand that's God's proof that he raised him from the dead to say there's a day of judgment for each and every person. So 1 Corinthians 15, Apostle Paul says, for I delivered to you first of all, some of your versions say, of first importance. That which I also received. And what he's about to do is quote a saying that's been around, scholars estimate, from the mid-30s A.D. In other words, just a couple of years after Christ died and rose again. He's going to quote a confession or a creed that was memorized by uh, the people of that region and that time to share with people. And again, even though Paul wrote this letter sometime, before, obviously before he died, in the, which he died in the mid-60s, this very well was written in the 50s, uh, this creed comes from the mid-30s. And what is the creed that comes from the mid-30s? He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. In other words, the entire gospel, really, dates way back to the mid-30s. Everything you need to know to be saved dates 
right to the very time of certainly the same decade as Christ's death and resurrection. And then Paul continues to say that he was seen by Cephas. There's another eyewitness. He was seen by the 12. There's 11 more eyewitnesses. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. In other words, go ask them. If you don't believe me, you can ask them yourselves if they saw the risen Christ. It's what every judge in the land wants when he's overseeing a trial is who saw what happened, right? Who saw it? Paul saying, ask Cephas or any one of the 12, but there's 500 guys together at once. They're all seen that many of them are still alive today when he wrote this in the 50s. Uh, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James. Go ask him. Then by the apostles. The last five was seen by me also as one born out of due time. In other words, the very thing you want to believe a story is eyewitness testimony. Paul says you have eyewitness testimony. Well, I want that testimony written in the most reliable of books. Well, this is the most reliable book by all secular tests there is. I want the eyewitnesses to believe in it so much that they are willing to sacrifice for the truth of it. These guys were all killed. They had everything you would ever ask for to believe. And um, and that is what we're thankful for. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we celebrate you. We thank you, Lord. Our hearts rejoice over you being our God and Savior. Jesus, may we be the same to you in our private devotional time as we are in the midst of crazy chaos in the secular world. Because we know you're the same to us always, Lord. Rid us of hypocrisy, Lord. And fill us with a courage that comes from the joy of our salvation. Lord, help us to know how to deal with all the enmity that exists against you so that we would be wise in every moment that we encounter. And Lord, may we submit our wills to your will, be living sacrifices each and every day to you. So may we day after day, morning after morning, present ourselves to you, the King of glory, that our lives would be exactly what you want them to be for your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.